Hello and welcome to Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Today's episode officially marks the beginning of our very own Women in Conservation series. We're celebrating all month long by sharing conversations with new women scientists never before on the show, sharing special clips from previous guests, and highlighting all of the women scientists that have been on the podcast across Rewildology social media accounts. For the first conversation in our Women in Conservation Science series, we are sitting down with Hiral Nike, African Program Manager for Save the Snakes, and a PhD student at the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. Hiral has been a natural explorer all of her life and spent her childhood exploring her Zimbabwean home and the country's famous national parks. During her teen years, Hiral's parents moved their family to India and then later relocated to South Africa, where she eventually found her calling. Hiral knew she wanted to contribute to the conservation of wildlife and naturally gravitated towards snakes as her curiosity and phylogenetics grew. Through a series of life events, she began working for Save the Snakes to perform on-the-ground conservation work while continuing on to her PhD studying the causes of snake bites and how to prevent them. Hiral and I have a fantastic conversation discussing what it was like for her to move to countries multiple times in her formative years, why she decided to study ecology and genetics, how she discovered her love of snakes, the conservation status of snakes globally and in South Africa, how antivenom works, snake bites as a tropical disease, and how we all can make the lives of snakes a little bit easier. All right, everyone, please enjoy this conversation with Hiral. Well, hi, Hiral. Thank you so much for sitting down with me and videoing all the way over in South Africa to talk about a new group of animals to the show and exploring not only what they are, but also the conservation of them and maybe helping us view them in a, in a different way than what they're commonly viewed as. So when you reflect on your childhood and everything that you've been through up until today, did you ever think that you would be a leading snake scientist one day? First of all, thanks for having me, Brooke. Um, it's such an honor to be here and sharing everything about my favorite topic, which is snakes. And yeah, I mean, first of all, to answer, answer your question, um, no, I never in my <laughs> life would have imagined that I would be here working for snakes, working with snakes and call this my career. Oh, so what drew you to them? When did you realize in your journey that you're like, oh my gosh, this is the group of animals I wanted to get dedicate my life to? So, I mean, growing up, it was never as if I had a fear of snakes. Within, uh, you know, Indian religions, we have gods that have, you know, animal representatives, and one of them has a cobra. So, you know, in, in, in the Indian religion, in many cultures, like they, they accept snakes and, and they pray to the snakes. So it was just kind of natural to accept that, okay, snakes are just a part of, who we are and, and they're around us. I, I was born and grew up in Zimbabwe and I, we used to visit this rehabilitation center 
Chipangani, I think they still exist. And they used to be all sorts of rehab animals there. And, and there was definitely a snake there too. And over the years, I think I just kind of admired the fact that they were so underrated. You know, most people really love the charismatic mammals of, of Africa. And don't get me wrong, I also really enjoyed them. But I mean, I, I really enjoyed hanging out with the lizards that we'd go find when we were, you know, going on adventures as kids um, to national parks and that sort of thing. And then, you know, eventually when it came to making a decision about my career, I kind of had to choose something that was, you know, that would provide me with something a lot more sustainable. And unfortunately, a career with snakes is not really it, you know. And at the time, I didn't really know what a zoologist was. And it wasn't until I got to university that I first really started learning more about snakes and thinking about, you know, this as a potential career. So you, you just mentioned that you were born in Zimbabwe and you have an Indian cultural heritage. Like that is what you know, your culture that you come from. So, but you, now you're in South Africa, which all of these pieces are amazing. So could you help us maybe tie the world map together for us with all of these things that you like life experiences that you've had? How did you end up to South Africa <laughs> after all of these things? <laughs> yeah, good question. Um, I don't think I, you know, intended to really leave Zimbabwe. I mean, Growing up as a kid in one place, you never really feel like you want to leave a place. But with um, a lot of the turmoil in Zimbabwe in the past, you know, it was great to have lived there during the 90s, which was a fantastic place to live as well. You know, we, we used to live, visit national parks. We used to go to, and, and for those of you that know, don't know, Zimbabwe is still fairly rural. Even, um, closer to some of the bigger cities. It's, it's not as, you know, city-centric as a lot of other countries. And so, you know, going, you know, experiencing nature and wildlife wasn't that far away. You could go an hour away out of town and, and be in a national park, for example. And so it was really great, like, from from that kind of environmental perspective. And I was very fortunate that my parents kind of encouraged us and, and you know, enabled us to go and explore. But um, so my, my parents are both born in India. And so we kind of decided to make the, the move to India and immigrate. And so that was it. But, you know, from a or when, rather, when I moved to India, I think I I definitely experienced a culture shock. Mm, I had mm -hmm. visited to India before um, on holiday because of my parents' family, but it you know living there is is completely different. It was, I mean, it was quite challenging for us to really find a lifestyle that would work for us. And so my uncle, who had lived in South Africa at the time, then came to India and encouraged my parents that, you know, for my sister and I, it would be better in terms of opportunities to come back to, to come to South Africa. Now, South Africa, you know, our lifestyle would have been very similar um, to Zimbabwe. 
And so we wouldn't, it would have been a lot easier to adjust. And so, yeah, when I was about 13 years old, we moved from India to South Africa. And um, yeah, I've kind of been here ever since. <laughs> <laughs> and just, just to reflect, because those are such impressionable times in a young girl's life to move to. I mean, it's one thing we talk about in the United States, you know, just moving from one state to a next can be the, like a really big culture shock and completely upheavals somebody's identity and what they think. This is this is a completely different scale. Like you're going from continent to continent back to a different back to this first continent in a different country and with a different culture. So. When you reflect on that, what was that like for you as a young girl? And how do you think that that has helped you do what you do now when you look back to have these life experiences of being so many different places when you were really young? So I was, I mean, I've always been kind of a natural explorer. You know, if, if I lived in another, another lifetime, I feel like you know, I might have been a natural historian gallivanting <laughs> the world like a Charles Darwin or something. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, and, and so, you know, I naturally was very confident and very independent. And so I think the adjustment wasn't so bad. And it was, you know, sometimes exciting. Like, okay, you're going on an adventure to a whole new place. But that being said, it's very challenging to let go of what you know and kind of embrace something something new, um, especially when it comes to your friends and the community that you create around you. And I mean, it, it often takes at least a year just to get to that point. So when I, I mean, it was, it was challenging leaving Zimbabwe, but what helped a little bit as well was that I think a lot of my friends and, and family friends were kind of making a similar decision. So we were mm. all kind of planning to be, at, you know, around the world somewhere because, you know, we had to kind of leave the home that we once knew. And then when I went to India, the the cultural difference made it a lot more challenging because it was, you know, everybody spoke a whole different language. You know, the school times were different. Like, you, you, you know, what I had known as extracurricular activities didn't really exist. I mean, most people will know that in, in Asian culture, academics and education is very stringent. And, you know, the parents will put a lot of pressure on their children to get good ac- academic grades. And so that was the culture that I was suddenly surrounded by. And I, I mean, I think for me, it became less about um, having my own balance and more kind of fitting in, which meant that there was a lot more pressure to now do well, you know, learn a language that, I mean, I had known because my family spoke it. But besides that, yeah, it was completely, it was completely shocking for me to just embrace it. And it took a long time. And I think, you know, after I, I did, I did adjust after a period of time only to then be told that, you know, we were moving again. Yeah. So the, the, the explorer side of me was like, okay, cool. New adventure. I'm excited. But, you know, I was, I was now almost a teenager and, um, like the social dynamics I knew were going to be very, very different. 
And sure enough, when I came to South Africa, it kind of was because I was kind of in my last year of my primary school. And by that point, everybody has already made friends and close knit groups, you know, before you, you go off into high school in South Africa. And so it took work to kind of get through those, I think, those emotions of feeling overwhelmed, but also like learning that, you know, this was, it was okay. It was, you know, it was okay to kind of give in and adapt. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, I just, I really wanted to ask you that question to help show your strength for the rest of the conversation. Like, all things going to make sense now. It's like, oh, before she even gets to college, she's like, I've been here, I've been here, I talk to this people, I know this culture, and I'm still thriving, I'm still figuring out, I'm going against the grain, I'm pushing all of these limits to do what it is that I want to do. And so now let's talk about that. And then we can we can reverse engineer and really dive into snakes and, and what's going on with the conservation coexistence, all of those very important topics. So first, what is it that you are currently doing? You do wear multiple hats, as a lot of us do in this field. So what are these multiple hats that you're wearing to start with? And then, yeah, we'll start talking deep about snakes. Cool. Um, so I'm currently working for um, a nonprofit organization called Save the Snakes. Um, I work as the Africa program manager. So I'm obviously based here in South Africa, but Save the Snakes is actually born in Sacramento, California. And it kind of started with my executive director, director's vision to promote snake conservation around the world and really kind of focus on mitigating human snake conflict. And so one of the big programs outside of California is in South Africa, where we, where I currently run an education and conservation program in partnership with Hoodsprate Reptile Center, which is a snake park here in, in Hoodsprate. And our partnership allows us to really bridge the gaps between what is traditional, you know, zoos and aquariums and, and nonprofit organizations. So it's a merging of different institutions with a common goal of educating and, and conserving the species that we love, which is snakes. And so we focus a lot on educating the communities in the area, the schools, working with healthcare professionals and really trying to get everybody to learn about living in harmony with snakes and how they can go about doing that. And first and foremost, it comes with, you know, respecting snakes and learning that they have a place in the environment as well. In conjunction with that, I am a herpetologist. So I'm currently in my third year of my PhD and I'm working on assessing snake bites in South Africa, which really focuses a lot on learning a lot more about snake defensive behavior, but also learning a lot more about the medical side of snake bite. So for anybody that doesn't know, snake bite was declared a neglected tropical disease by the WHO in 2017. Um, and this is largely because millions of people are affected around the world. And my personal goal, especially for my PhD, is trying to understand the circumstances that people are bitten in. We, we don't really have a clear picture of, you know, how people are getting bitten or that most of them accidental. 
And by, by learning more about this, we can work towards preventing it, which ties in very well with a lot of the conservation work that we do. So that in kind of a nutshell is a lot, like some of the bigger things that I'm working on. Those are not small things <laughs> at all. You're like, I'm an integral part of this amazing nonprofit and I'm running this like whole education coexistence program. And I'm like in my third year, my PhD, like you were so humble about that. Those are amazing, huge things, which is awesome and very cool. So let's start talking about snakes. So I know that everybody listening, everyone on this planet has their own opinion of snakes, and they are probably one of the most commonly misunderstood groups of animals there are. And you're one of the first people that I've met that actually loves them. <laughs> so maybe to help put it in context and maybe help all of us understand why, from your experience, why are humans, why are people so afraid of snakes? So for a long time, there have been a lot of myths that have been spread from generation to generation about snakes. And whether this could be, a, you know, a story that a grandmother told to their granddaughter, and so the story kind of passed on, or whether it was just something that people learned in their communities. People just seem to think that snakes, you know, want to come and chase you, and the snakes are really these evil creatures. And, and in a lot of um, scripture, snakes are kind of portrayed that way as well. And, and we never realized how much, you know, how, or, or rather um, realize how much truth there is to that. In fact, most people that are scared of snakes have never even seen a snake in their life. But because now their grandmother, who they really respect, told them, the story about an evil snake, they now suddenly think that snakes are evil. And you know what, in, in a lot of the work that we've done in, in work that I've read, a lot of it is really just specific to a region, a community. Mm. No two communities have the same ideologies about snakes. But what a lot of them have in common is that they know that they just have an, this innate fear for, for, of snakes. And when often asked, you know, why they're scared of snakes, they they don't really have a an answer. It's just because that's just something, you know, people think and believe. Yeah, that that makes sense. That absolutely makes sense. And I love that you brought up the scripture thing because this is something that I'm starting to pay significantly more attention to is because, you know, religion has such a strong cultural aspect for everything that we do and we and we believe and that that's that's universal. That is like if you're human and exposed to some sort of religion, it's had a great impact on you. And you are right that there are a lot of different scriptures where snakes are viewed as demons or they're sly and they're sneaky and they're they're evil. Like they really are a sign of evil. But just like you said, in Hinduism, it's Lord shivish right that he like yep. the snake the snake is him and so and he's like the most powerful god and so you, you just don't kill a god like you just why how could you do that so it's just incredible to to explore these different cultural the yeah, these actual cultural differences and then how they also apply to conservation it's just it's just fascinating that was just more of a side tangent because i've i've been doing um I'm currently working on something that is with a well-known big cat in a 
a religion that is having a very strong part in their conservation, which you don't normally think that as scientists, they're like, oh, religion is somewhere over there. It's like, actually, no, it has a really big part in this. And if there's oral traditions that I'm sure that you are around all the time that you hear from the communities you work in that has a big impact on whether or not a snake lives or dies like that, that that's something that we need to know and we need to figure out, you know? So how do you exactly study animals that are really good at not being seen or found or giving you any sign that they're there? Like, how do you actually study snakes? From someone who has no clue. <laughs> That's a very good question. I th- you have to find the hotspot. So, I mean, you know, typically, you, you, you know, we've had experts in the field for a really long time. So every student coming in will find or, you know, a field site that is quite popular for certain snake species. Different, obviously, different regions, you find different snake species, which are quite dominant. And so it, it rather becomes more about the question that you're trying to ask as a scientist. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. what are you trying to figure out about the species? Are you trying to figure out the movement behavior of certain, certain species? To give you an example, my professor that really kind of inspired a lot of my interest in, in snakes and snake biology and evolution really became interested in the movement of puff adders. Um, which are the, these fat little thick snakes that you find here in South Africa and most of other parts of um, Africa as well. But we're quite interested in, you know, learning more about how such a slow-moving ambush foraging snake moves from place to place, how long it takes them to move. So that requires, you know, different methodologies. So first of all, how are we going to track the snake? Well, you know, we need transmitters and the transmitters then need to be implanted in the snake. And then you have to track the snake. So it, it takes a huge chunk of time for the, re- the researcher themselves to track a snake every day to ensure that they can still keep track of the snake. Because otherwise you're likely to lose the, the placement of the snake. It might be okay when you're tracking something like a slow moving puff adder. But if you're tracking something like a fast-moving cobra, they can move large distances. So that's mm-hmm. one example. The other example is um, some of the work that I'm doing with behavior. So with behavior, it's largely observational. Again, it just means that you know you need the necessary ethical clearance and research permits to access snakes in the wild. And then if you have a facility like Pittsburgh Reptile Center, you can bring them here. You can house them and, and create certain rooms or arenas or whatever kind of observational area that is required for whatever topic you're looking at. And then you kind of set it up that way. So there's a lot of things that go into thinking about how you're going to work with snakes. You know, they're not, they're like pretty much other animals when it comes to getting the right research permits, getting the right ethical clearances. Um, But I will say that, you know, when it comes to reptiles specifically, even from the research side, there isn't really a lot of interest or, and there hasn't been as much of an interest, obviously when you, when you're like me and you live in a country where 
mammals to kind of take the preference in so many, so many ways. That's pretty universal. <laughs> I think every, you know, I think pretty much everywhere mammals definitely went out over the herps, which is unfortunate. I mean, I my big love is happens to be a mammal, but we need to we need to know and understand all of our species if we're going to properly save our biodiversity. Yeah, because I've just wondered about that. It's, snakes don't have necks, so you can't put a collar on it. They don't have legs, so you can't put an ankle bracelet around it. They slither in things, so you can't put a tag on it. So I'm like, how in the world do you actually study snakes to understand their biology and their and, and what they do, really, like what, what they do on a daily basis? Because it just seems that when we hear about snakes, it's not usually in a good way. You know, someone happens to stumble upon one in some because they're running is, you know, at, uh, in Colorado, you know, that's a really big thing with rattlesnakes that runners might go out or dogs get taken quite often. So it's not really good that we hear good things about them when they're, they're just living their life. They're not, they're not intentionally doing anything. So with that though, that brings up the next really important question and that is their conservation. So how are our snakes doing maybe on a global scale so overall, what's what's the trend happening with snakes? And then maybe let's also then uh, zoom in on South Africa and, and maybe some of the species that you work with and, and what are they experiencing and, and how are they faring? Yeah, sure. So just a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago, there was a huge paper that came out that actually showed there's, there's a massive decline happening in a lot of our world's reptiles. We know snakes that snakes to be quite resilient, and and they they are. There are a fair number of threatened species around the world, also because a lot of snakes are quite endemic to certain locations. So if they only occur on one island in the you know the South Pacific or something, then you know they're immediately classed as threatened, and um, you have to try and figure out. Is there some kind of decline? Are they, you know, threatened because, you know, the island is being deforested or, you know, there's some kind of external environmental threat? On the whole, snakes are okay. Um, like I said, they, they are quite resilient. Um, but the biggest challenge with snakes is that we actually don't know what's happening. So snakes mm -hmm. are one of the most understudied species in the world. And as much as I mentioned that the fact that you can put a tracker in some snakes, they have to be big enough. And most snakes are actually like really, really tiny and super thin, which means that we have no way to really track what they're doing, um, how they're behaving and, and what kind of threats they're facing. There's, you know, a lot of threats that are facing other species, like, you know, habitat transformation, urban development, just natural habitat loss, and, and human-wildlife conflict are all affecting snakes as well. But we really have no idea the impact that they're having on the population numbers, because population numbers are not easy, or population studies are not necessarily that easy to be done. And so, you know, when it comes down to South Africa specifically, we also, I mean, our, our, most of our snakes are classed as least concerned by the IUCN. But the truth is, in, there are these small little pockets 
that are experiencing massive transformation. People that we speak to that have lived in a location will tell us that, you know, even snake numbers are not what they used to be about 10 years ago. Mm. So the truth is that there is a decline happening. Whether that means that we need to start caring about it right now or in the future is, is up to us. And, and so someone like myself as a snake conservationist, it's my duty to kind of prioritize that and say, okay, well, maybe they're not declining right now. But what happens when all the rhinos and elephants and giraffes of the world are, are gone? You know, what species are we going to then, you know, be looking after? And even if snakes are around then, we don't really know what numbers they're going to be around in. And so it means that we have to stop looking at it from a species-specific point of view and start protecting biodiversity as a whole. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I love that the field is starting to go towards more of like landscape scale conservation versus just species specific for that exact reason, especially for the species that don't have near as much of a voice, you know, those the snakes and the frogs and the lizards and stuff. But if they happen to be in habitat that is prime with high biodiversity, then hopefully they will get the benefits from being there as well. So then since you've now worked in this field for a while and you work a lot on the human dimension side of this as well, what are some of the most common causes of conflict that you're seeing? And then also, could you explore with me what are some of the ways that you're helping to mitigate that as well? So what's causing it and then how are we fixing it? Trying to, at least. <laughs> sure. So when it comes to conflict, I think, you know, the fear factor that people have does not make that easy at all, which means that instead of taking an approach that's aggressive and trying to change or, or you know, just immediately ask people to change, we have to go with a very slow approach and, you know, learn first why people are thinking about things the way that they're thinking, but also use a, an approach that encourages you know, us as people that are passionate about snakes to be passionate about them in the first place. And then take that and encourage people to, to learn more about actually snakes are, are quite fascinating animals. They're, you know, they're, they're really important in the ecosystem because they feed on rats and mice, which are often a pest, especially in a lot of rural communities and farms and things. And But at the same time, they're also food to other animals like birds and mammals, even other snakes. Usually seeing that kind of role encourages people to see snakes as kind of every other animal. And we often, one, one of the really interesting ones that we also encourage people to think about is that snake venom is actually used to create medicine, medicine for cancer, medicine for blood pressure. And so we use a lot of snake biology and snake facts to encourage people to really become interested in learning more about snakes. So it's not even that, you know, people have to just stop killing snakes. One of the first things that's going to ch shift that, you know, is, is interest. 
So it's interest versus ignorance. So if you're ignorant, you will kill an animal. If you're interested, you're now going to be curious. And you know what we encourage is to leave the snake alone. And so they will leave the snake alone. And so it's quite a, a an intricate balance that we often kind of play with because it's, you know, we all know that humans are quite dynamic people and um, everybody thinks differently. So we have to tread quite lightly when we're dealing with different people. Some people absolutely love kind of education we do. They're very receptive and, and we can get through to them a lot easier than, than others. But we've learned that, you know, building relationships is really important. So instead of just sitting back and saying, okay, well, you know, if you don't like it, then tough. The next time you kill a snake, you know, we're going to try and, I don't know, kind of harm you in any way. It's more about, okay, well, you know, why do you see it this way? Please, you know, if you feel like you want to kill the snake, please don't kill the snake. There are people around that would like to help the snake and, you know, release it back into the environment where it belongs. And so it, it really is quite a dynamic approach. And even when it comes to the conflict, it really depends on the situation. Some people, again, it comes back to, you know, if they have a myth that's kind of dominant in the community about snakes, then that's all they will see. And, and that shifting that kind of mindset is, is very clearly going to take a while. But, you know, putting in those little steps where people are encouraged to, to call us when they see a snake or to even just call us and ask us for advice. We're always available to, to help people. And I think that's, yeah, that's the most important thing we can do. And I think a good extension of this, if we could keep going down this path, is you just mentioned a little earlier in our conversation that snake bites is now treated as a disease by the World Health Organization. So now it is a health issue that I would imagine then is being treated by healthcare professionals. So how does this all come together? Because obviously someone that might like, you know, a doctor that is treating a snake bite is also a biologist. So where do you see your role and your knowledge in this for helping snakes maybe prevent bites and maybe that's going to be what helps conflict? And and what is the what's the narrative that you bring to this and helping on this bigger picture now and keeping our snakes here? Mm, I'm really glad that you asked this question because it it, it is. I mean, I'm a biologist. Uh, my primary interest is working with the wildlife. So now when you bring humans into the factor, plus you bring in the medical side of people into the picture, everything kind of changes. And what I've learned through the process is that, first of all, snakebite has been around for a long time. You know, snakes have lived in, in the world um, for a lot longer than humans have. And snake bites have occurred for a really long time as well. But what's changed, and it comes down to the conservation of it, of you know, the world, is that now humans are encroaching on natural habitats. So now there's more encounters between humans and snakes. 
just like any other animal. And so now we're starting to see a lot more snake bites happening. But snake bite as a medical or within the medical world is not even really taught to medical students. And so the current healthcare professionals that we deal with, they don't even know how to deal with the snake bite. So mm. one of the most important things is, is encouraging healthcare professionals to treat it symptomatically. There has been, you know, around the world, a lot of different ways of trying to educate healthcare professionals. You know, a lot of people are trying to encourage them to learn to differentiate snakes. But think about it, you know, a healthcare professional in, in a, working in an emergency room is not going to have time to identify a snake. What they right. see is, you know, whatever the symptoms someone is experiencing. And so that a lot of the current work that we do with healthcare professionals is to encourage them to treat patients symptomatically. But we also, you know, hand in hand do the identification education. And what we've kind of seen is that when doctors do that, they're a little bit more well-equipped to deal with the snake bite. Now, the thing is, in different countries, it's really quite different. In South Africa, we've, we have one of the best healthcare systems. On, on, you know, it's the best in, on the African continent. So obviously, we'll be able to better treat a lot more snake bite patients than those that are in Central, um, Central Africa. But, you know, throughout this process, I've also learned that healthcare professionals in general, they don't actually know, they, they, you know, they, they don't have the necessary knowledge on it. So while trying to educate communities, we also need to educate healthcare professionals. And as a collective, it means that we have the ability to work together to tackle snake bite, you know, as, as the snake experts we can provide perspective on snake behavior and their distribution from the social side of things we we want to know a lot more about how you know people are feeling what their perspectives are what their perceptions are and then from the medical side it's more about okay well you know we know that anti-venom is the only treatment but how can we do our best to keep patients alive when anti-venom becomes unavailable. And so this trio in the last two or three years has become a huge focus area on a global scale. And it's it's quite exciting to be a part of that because now you know you're not just we're all learning from each other. It's not about, you know, who provides the best opinion. It's about how we can all work together to find a solution. Ah. Uh. I love that mindset. Collaboration. It's like we all have the same goal here. We don't want to see wildlife die and we don't want people to inadvertently die just because they happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Like, And when it comes to antivenom, this is just a curiosity. Is there like an antivenom, like a penicillin? Is it there's like you, you know, one antivenom and you're good? Or is it different types for different types of snakes? Is that why they're like you need to identify the snakes or... Yeah, how from a medical standpoint does that actually work? So snake biology first. So snakes have evolved venom to eat prey. Now we know that prey varies across the world, as do the snakes themselves. And so most 
species have different kinds of venom. And as a result, the anti-venom that's going to be most effective is going to be very region and species specific. There are anti-venoms that work for a few different snakes. So in South Africa, we've got one which is a polyvalent anti-venom, which covers everything from black mambas and other mambas to cobras and the puff adder as well. Um, and these are just some of them, the snakes that are biting people the most. They're also quite broadly distributed, which it means, again, coming back to the fact that they're, you know, going to in be uh, interacting with people more often than some other smaller species. But this is very Southern Africa specific. In other regions of the world, there's different snake species. And so one of the biggest challenges that has existed in the last couple of years is the fact that they, even in somewhere like India, where the snakes are very different, they're using a, an anti-venom that's being developed for snakes in Africa. Um, mm. and, and that is likely, you know, to be more ineffective. And so there's a lot of work now going into one, learning about venom variation in different snakes, and then being able to develop anti-venom specifically for those target snakes. That is so helpful. Thanks. Because I, I'm, I, that's just one of the things I don't know. I've luckily have never been bitten by a venomous snake, so I have not had to have the 101 on how anti-venom works. So, so I was like, how does that work? Yeah, is it like, yeah, there's just one injection and you're good no matter who you are or just like because that biologically speaking that makes way more sense but i wanted to ask you the expert and so again going back to this prevention thing because that seems to be the the big idea to help save snakes because if less people are being bit or coming in conflict with them then they're less likely to die for you know a multitude of reasons so how do we do that how do we better coexist with snakes whether we're in south africa whether in Colorado where rattlesnakes are really big, um, whether different parts of the world where maybe really dangerous snakes or not dangerous snakes, but in general, what can we all do and how maybe how can we view snakes to help one keep them here so that we're not inadvertently killing them? And, and how do we live with snakes? How can we better be stewards with our snakes on our lands? The main thing it comes down to is education and outreach. And Save the Snakes is one of the few organizations that has a really good model where we've got conservation partners around the world. So within different countries around the world, you have snake experts, snake-loving individuals that are trying to do this education and outreach, working with the local communities and trying to encourage them to learn a lot more about snakes. And when we meet other people, you know, from government down to community level um, it's really just about how we educate people about snakes one of the biggest challenges is that snake education or anything like you know snake biology snake science is not really incorporated into school curricula as well as it should be and so that's where i mean that's the first problem if people are going into this world you know we learn about for example, in in other a lot of African countries, you'll 
learn a lot about the big five animals. Um, and these are all around us. So now suddenly you're aware that, okay, these, all these different animals exist. But, you know, uh, we, we see snakes in, in books. There's some kinds of, you know, in an encyclopedia, they're kind of muddled up with other reptiles. And, you know, they're spoken in the reference of dinosaurs. That's kind of how people think of them. But we don't think about them in the relevance of our daily lives. And sure, people that are living in the cities, it might not be as relevant. But it doesn't mean that when you go out into the, the wilderness, if you're taking a hike, that you're not going to see snakes. Snakes are actually quite common in the bush as a species like many other wildlife. You know, they're not as rare as some big cats, for example. So you're more likely to encounter a snake than you are a lion. And so that shift in the curricula needs to happen because mm. people, again, it comes down to how, you know, we can effectively live with wildlife. One of the most, and, and maybe that's the shift that kind of needs to happen, right? We have to stop focusing on, you know, what lives around us and rather how we are living with different species. What are the common species that we are living and encountering every day? And once that kind of mindset changes, you start to realize that, okay, well, snakes are a big part of that. So how do we learn more about them? You know, what, what makes them navigate throughout the environment? You know, is it, is it shelter? Are they trying to hide away? Are they trying to eat something? There, we have been some really cool citizen science projects around the world that have focused a lot on encouraging people to observe certain snake behaviors. And this has yielded some really great results because now you're encouraging even people that are interested in reptiles in general to start thinking about it in a scientific way and why that information is now useful. And so it immediately, there's like a click in the brain that happens where you stop looking in the, at them as, as just another animal and rather as, you know, this really interesting species doing this really interesting behavior. Oh, yeah. They're really interesting, even from a biological standpoint, like how do they even move? You know, just the fact that they have locomotion and can do all kinds of crazy things and expand like a gazillion times their size when they eat food. They're just really cool animals. They're just sometimes happen to scare you and you're like, oh God, I didn't know you were there. <laughs> like, you know, and even I've done that. And so I'm 100% guilty of that. I've not killed one in retaliation, but uh, yeah, they've definitely spooked me a couple times. So I, I want to make a switch to you. So our wonderful conversation is going to be dropped during Women in Conservation Science Month for the show. And you are a snake biologist and you're a woman. Let's just explore that for a second. What has it been like for you being a woman snake biologist so far in your career? Yeah, that's a really good question. I would say on the whole, it's been very positive. I won't say that there haven't been challenges along the way. One of the first and foremost being coming from my family who, you know, first of all, also did not, never saw me working as a snake biologist. 
and never thought that this could actually be some kind of career. I mean, you know, where I am today, they're really proud of the fact that, you know, I've got to where I am. And again, it comes down to my tenacious personality to try and do something. You know, I have always, I have always been very ambitious. And I think that's assisted me a lot in being a woman in this field because it is very, very male dominated. I mean, it, it's quite evident on a, on a, international scale but very much so in in a in a south african context and even in a south african context there aren't any female snake biologists that you know i could have looked up to and said oh okay well that's the kind of thing i wanted to do and so you you kind of work with whatever you have around you i was never criticized or put down and to say that, you know, okay, well, I could never do this as a career or that, I, you know, I'm incapable. And I think coming from an academic and research background, it was more about, okay, well, what kind of science can you do? Which adds a little bit more pressure because now you're, you're thinking, okay, you, you know, the academic world, there they are so many existing pressures. And now you're a female and you're a snake biologist. You have, you know, I have had, even now, there's so many other male colleagues of mine that are doing some incredible work. And there's a competitive nature that starts to become quite dominant because, and, and certain feelings, because you, you don't, like they, you, you have challenges with um, imposter syndrome. You feel like you're never quite going to get to that point as some of the other researchers. but I've been so fortunate to come into this field at a time where conservation as a whole is experiencing the shift where we are now empowering women. And that really helps a lot of people that are working as individuals in male-dominated fields to feel like they've got a place um, and a community that they can reach out to if they need it. Because it means that you, you're looking up to women that even if they're an astrobiologist and they're a woman, they're doing something in their field. So it might not necessarily be snakes, but it's something that you, know, you can look up to. And that kind of, that mindset does take a shift because now you're able to go after certain or make certain goals and go after them. And so it's been exciting to be able to be a woman in this field and, and being accepted because it's more about, okay, well, you know, these are all the amazing things you're doing and you're doing it even as a woman and as, a, as someone that works in a very male-dominated world. I've also been very fortunate to meet a lot of, you know, male herpetologists that have also been really encouraging and supportive. You know, they they are, see women as their equals. And I think within my generation now too, there are a lot more men that are seeing women as equals. We we don't live in a generation now where you know there is this hierarchy. We are all equals. We're all working towards the same goals. We can all share the you know ideas and acknowledgement of the fact that okay well we can both as men and women 
provide different perspectives and come to, you know, solutions for whatever the, the problems are. Yes, that was fantastic. I could not agree more. Some of the most important people in my life that have completely changed the trajectory of my career were men in this field. And so I, I'm so glad to also hear that you've also had similar experiences where there's you know, with the next big wave coming up in conservation, AKA, you know, our generation that there is a change and it's fantastic to see. And it's so encouraging. And so I like to encourage everyone, my, my ladies in the field and also my men and anybody who wants to call themselves something in between it's beautiful. And we all need every single voice. If we are to actually reach these really tough goals that we have for saving our biodiversity and our and just conserving our natural spaces. And so on that, I, I really do love your perspective. What advice would you like to give specifically to other women in this field? And then maybe expand that in general to anybody that's listening. So if you want to give both, what would those be? Ooh. First of all, uh, I like to say that no, no dream is too big, you know, but build up to those dreams step by step. And I think you can really get anything you want if you put your mind to it. And don't be afraid to reach out. So it is, sometimes it is easier being a go-getter to be able to find opportunities and find people mentors or friends or people that can really help and support you. I know there are so many others that might not be so confident in being able to do that. And in those situations, I think technology plays a huge role in being able to access resources from around the world. There are multiple different websites and, and platforms that really allow, encourage women to, to be a part of the network and a community that is able to offer advice or assistance. And, and along with that is you, you accept that, but find what works for you within that. You know, just because something worked for someone else, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's gonna work for you. And so play around with it. It's okay, you know, there's no right answer. We're all on a journey where we are trying to figure things out. It's, you know, that's life. We're constantly trying to figure it out. We're, we're, nobody is at a point where, you know, they've, they've, they know it all. We all have challenges. We all have those days where we just don't feel motivated. And, you know, it's also important within those times to then have something that you can just quickly go to, whether it's, um, specific friends that, you know, will, uh, you know, give you advice, just, you know, someone that'll give you a hug and, and suddenly you feel, okay, well, it's okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. So yeah, I think that answered the question. Yeah, no, that was good. That was fantastic. If somebody wants to maybe learn more about snakes and maybe see what Save the Snakes is up to and follow you and your work, what are some of the best resources out there for all of those things? <laughs> so I would, I mean, first and foremost, say check out the Save the Snakes website. In the next little while, we're also getting some great new content that's actually coming from a lot of interns and, and people that are kind of assisting us with, 
with information, which means that, you know, it's not just one perspective. It's, you know, it's different people and how they're starting to think about snakes. But it also means it's a great resource for, for anybody that's looking for information on snakes. We, as our initiative and our organization, try to get as much environmental education material out there. We do a lot of, it's a lot of the content we share with our communities. And, and so, yeah, I mean, on our website, we've also got links to other platforms that might be able to provide you with snake savvy information. So yeah, check it out. And if someone might want to follow you and keep up to date with what you're doing? Well, I'm on all the social media platforms. Well, all of them being Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, so just find me, Harold Nike. That's on Facebook and, and Twitter. And it's at Heroes Hive on Instagram. And on my Instagram, you'll see a lot of snake photos that I do. I do dabble in a bit of photography, which, I, again, I should mention is, a, is such a great way to get you interested in whatever animal that you're working on as well. So, yeah, check us out. Well, awesome, Hero. Thank you so much again for sitting down with me and sharing your story with the Rewatology community and hopefully helping all of us just have a little bit more love and graciousness towards this very commonly misunderstood group of animals. So again, thank you so much for sitting down with me. And thank you so much for having me. It's been, it's been so great. I honestly love having an opportunity to be able to encourage anyone out there to just become a little bit more interested in snakes um, and why they're so cool. I always say, you know, if you can learn one snake fact in a day, it's my job is done. And I've been, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. I love having experts on the show to teach us about misunderstood species. And I'm happy Hero was the one to teach us about snakes. If you have any questions you'd like to ask Hero, head on over to the Rewildologist Facebook group and submit your question on the homepage. As always, I want to thank you for being a part of the Rewildology community. If you'd like to support the show, some zero-cost ways include subscribing to the podcast on your favorite streaming app, leaving a rating and review to boost the algorithm, which will present the podcast to more listeners, signing up for the weekly Rewildology newsletter at Rewildology.com, subscribing to the YouTube channel, and following the show on your favorite social media app. If you'd like to financially support the show and help us keep these stories on the airwaves, consider making a monetary donation at Rewatology.com or purchase a piece of swag to show off your Rewatology love. At least 10% of proceeds from this podcast will be donated to our conservation partners. I'd also like to extend a special thanks to Heather Valley, the show's audio and video producer, and Focusrite for powering the podcast sound. If you'd like to see the Focusrite gear we use to record the show, head on over to rewildology.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. Until next time, friends, together we'll rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>